You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 9th of May, 2019, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, the Iran nuclear agreement. Can it be saved? We'll be discussing why the US, the EU and Iran just can't see eye to eye on the deal. My guests, Mary Dijewski and Joy Ladiko, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including European leaders gather in Romania to examine what shape the future of the union might take. We'll also be looking at some of the gig economy's biggest players ahead of Uber's IPO and ask if the model is sustainable. And we'll learn about a new pub in Dublin opening this week where there will be no alcoholic drinks on sale to celebrate. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the writer and broadcaster Mary Dijewski and Joy Ladiko, columnist at the London Evening Standard. Welcome both back to the program. The Iran nuclear deal, or what's left of it, suffered significant new setbacks today. Tehran has announced it will quit its commitments to parts of the 2015 agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, as it's known, which was signed by the U.S. and major powers such as the U.K., Germany and China, designed to ensure Iran wasn't enhancing its nuclear capabilities for nefarious gains, of course. Specifically, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani has said Iran will stop exporting enriched uranium and heavy water, both important for a nuclear weapons program. Iran could now continue to produce both and stockpile them. In response today, the U.S. has announced harsh new sanctions on the nation targeting Iran's aluminum, or aluminium, as we might say in this country, steel, iron, and copper producers. Mary, uh, let's begin with you, perhaps. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, uh, he was both in Baghdad and in London recently. Should we read anything into those visits regarding these developments? I found that curious. Well, I think it... it um not only that, uh, the strange combination of the places he went to, but he also cancelled a meeting in Berlin mm. with um, Chancellor Merkel, um, which also seemed very strange given Merkel's quite dominant position in Europe, and you would have thought that um, that would not be a meeting he'd cancel. Um, but in London, it was very interesting um, what he appeared um, to be trying to do, because he obviously understood, and the Trump administration clearly understands very well, that the UK is in a rather difficult position at the moment. Um, because um, its heart, as it were, is with the European Union on the Iran deal, very much so. Um, it was part of the group that helped negotiate it. It has a huge investment in the success of this deal, and it definitely um, divides from the United States in, in the way that the US unilaterally withdrew from this agreement. At the same time, um, Mike Pompeo obviously realises that the UK needs friends at a time when it's on the verge of leaving the European Union. And so there was this sort of, almost a sort of a double attempt um, to try and prize the UK away from the European solidarity. Um, I don't think in this particular respect it'll, it'll succeed. Mm. Um, but the, the, the problem is that without the key member of the multilateral agreement on Iran, it suddenly looks much, much weaker. And of course, Iran censors that and wants to exploit some of 
what now look like loopholes. Mm. Well, Mike Pompeo is asking the UK to stand with Washington against Iran's so-called bloodletting and lawlessness, as he said it. But doesn't it need mentioning that the White House perhaps created this schism, Joy, by pulling out of the deal itself? Uh, well, yes. I mean, that's starting an argument and then mm. pretending it's their fault. Um, you know, everything was ticking along relatively nicely from 2015. And our position, Jeremy Hunt's position, I mean, he sort of gently sort of swatted away Pompeo and basically said... We, as long as they haven't done anything wrong, we carry on with the deal as it is, and that's been the uh, reaction today from uh, the European Union, so the, Euro- the European signatories to the deal. Uh, Iran has issued this this idea that we've got, we've got sixty days now to comply, and we've got this odd triangulation that's going on. It's now a power play. So, for what was three sides all aligned? Uh, now the question is, will the US be dominant? Uh, will Europe actually side with Iran against the US? Or will Europe at some point balk? The real problem within this is that um, as well as imposing fresh sanctions on Iran, what the US has effectively done has uh, imposed proxy sanctions on the European countries and on uh, Russia and China that are right. dealing with Iran. So at some point we should look up and say, I mean, how dare you? We, we, you know, we've, we've got our kind of routines of doing business. We've got our standards, too. We all sign this deal. Um, how can you do this to us? Uh, Mary, with all that uh, the U.S. has said about Iran recently and pulling out of this deal, I wonder if Tehran's patience uh, to keep up its end of the deal has, has just completely run out. If we look at the front of the, the Financial Times here, the U.S. saying <laughs> Iran's holding the world hostage. What, what do you make of that? Well, I think that's really going a bit far because as I read the situation, Iran has actually um, been going quite a long way. Um, On the one hand, not to be seen as a pushover in the face of the American withdrawal, but at the same time to do nothing that would actually jeopardise the actual deal. I think it's been very, very careful. Um, But I also think there's a huge risk here. I think that um, Washington is maybe taking a much bigger risk in um, its relations or non-relations with Iran um, than, say, it is in standing firm over China or sort of playing North Korea at its own game. Um, I think Iran is a completely different sort of country, a different sort of regime. And I think the US has to be much more careful there. Uh, Joy, some have suggested this could be a plea from Iran uh, for Chinese and and the Europeans to step up and kind of help Iran. Their uh, economy has been crippled, uh, but Europe itself hit back quite quite sharply at uh, Iran today in in their move. Well, I'm not sure they did actually. I think that you know if you read it very carefully, it's a beautifully diplomatic statement, mm. which is saying we are doing absolutely everything not to get to this point in 60 days' time where we have to take action. Right. And in the, uh, in the background, there will be a lot of phone calls and lot trying to soothe things over. Um, I think Mary's absolutely correct to say this dealing with Iran is not the same as dealing with North Korea. Um, there's another sort of little detail in it, which is, you know, the, the US is pressuring China at the moment to cut, uh, to stop buying oil from Iran. And Iran, China is the biggest supplier to China for oil is Iran. Now, how can the US simultaneously do that and then keep imposing tariffs? At some point, the people who get this, I begin to wonder whether this is actually the turning point for Trump, where everybody is so fed up with, you know, his saber rattling kind of says, well, actually, collectively, we've all been getting on with the Iran problem. Uh, Iran has, in fact, become, you know, compliant, talks to us and diplomatic. So should we just carry on in this rather civilized fashion? Mm.
I wonder, uh, Mary, if this is a bit of a, as as Joy suggests, a, a failed foreign policy exercise from the White House. They've, you know, North Korea is starting some sorts of tests again, and, and now Iran is threatening uh, to return to its nuclear enrichment. What, what do you make of uh, Washington's play here? Well, I think, um, as I said, I mean, I think that Iran is different um, and will react differently um, from maybe how Washington expects. Um, and I think one thing to bear in mind is that um, U.S. expertise on Iran and actual recent experience of Iran is almost zero um, because they've actually had no diplomatic relations since the hostage crisis. Um, and that makes it extremely unusual, but it also makes it, I think, it quite difficult um, for the U.S. to read Iran properly. Um, I'm not sure that everything, at least with North Korea, is completely unraveling. I think there's a lot of posturing going on there. Um, and in a sense, the big move on North Korea has already happened in the sense that um, Kim Jong-un has been sort of brought in from the cold. Communications have been established. Um, we're not nothing like in the same situation we were two years ago. Mm. Um, so I think that is slightly different. But I do think that the, the Europeans have actually been quite astute um, in getting their act together, preserving their unity over Iran with the European Union as, as a body um, supporting the deal which was negotiated by with the involvement of the European representatives. Um, and I think that the they've also put in place um, measures to try and get around um, the proxy sanctions, as Joy described them, um, uh, being imposed by the United States. And I think maybe... Washington won't find it as easy as maybe once it did um, to have its writ run everywhere. Hmm. Well, let's stay with the European theme. I want to turn our attention now to Romania, where European leaders have been meeting today to try to set the tone for how the bloc of countries will shape its future. At the moment, still a future without the UK. Meeting in the city of Sibiu in Transylvania. You can correct me if I've said that wrong, but uh, the Sibiu Declaration, uh, as it's informally been dubbed, includes 10 noble, if somewhat vague points, including uh, we will defend one Europe from east to west, north to south, we will stay united from uh, through thick and thin, thin, and we will always look for joint solutions. Very interesting and, and vague, perhaps, but uh, today also incidentally, officially Europe Day. So happy Europe Day to everyone, whatever that means. But uh, Joy, what does today's declaration say about where Europe is heading, do you um, think? It, it shows that it's got some incredibly bland policy makers <laughs> and that uh, everything can be written in a kind of wonderful overarching way and we desperately want to agree with each mm. other. So we, uh, obviously, we are not in at the moment. Uh, we've managed to send um, our Brexit minister, Stephen Barclay, who's, who's not, um, I would say, the sharpest knife in the drawer uh, and uh, nor is he the most eloquent. He's managed to call, he's managed to insult uh, various other leaders and calling them lazy so far. So we've already had explosions <laughs> from the Brits there. Um, the whole thing is a lovely idea. There's clearly lots of divisions within the EU 27. Uh, one of the great ironies of Brexit is that, in fact, many of those haven't really surfaced because they've been so busy f focused on um, trying to negotiate with us, the tricky partner. Uh, but things get rather interesting when you really do start putting the focus on how Poland, how Hungary and how Italy are going mm. to uh, work with uh, the EU, within the EU structure, within the next... Uh, few years and whether they can indeed adhere to what 
a larger rump of the EU wants. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. Um, Mary, there is promise to stand as a united 27 here, as we've heard in this in this loose declaration. But how united are things feeling right right now, <laughs> especially ahead of the, the European elections? Well, I, f- I find them actually quite contradictory because hmm. on the one hand, I think it's almost remarkable um, when you look at everything from the perspective of London, um, how solid um, the European Union has remained um, in the face of Brexit. I think there were there were expectations right at the beginning um, that Brexit might form a trend and other people might be encouraged to do something similar. Um, that was quashed very early on. Um, but I think one of the major misjudgments by the UK has been the extent to which the, the, the European Union has remained united, at least on that one question. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at um, other divisions... Um, or at least the divisions that sort of manifest themselves at the moment. We're looking at um, north-south in terms of the economy and in terms of the um, migration question to a large degree. And we're also looking at east-west. And east-west at the moment, as between what we call old Europe and what um, the East and Central Europeans hate being called new Europe, um, you are looking at, um, in many ways, a different mindset. Um, And I think the question there is whether um, the two halves of Europe are going to sort of mesh, whether they're going to knit together more successfully over, say, the next 10 years um, than they've been able to do over the last 15 years. Um, And I think you can make arguments both ways. Hmm. Uh, Joy, I wonder about what role the UK is playing these days. Is Britain still present in the European conversation at all? Um, No, no. So it's, it's largely stepped out, actually. Theresa May is very notably not at the Cebu conference. Um, there was a, a wonderful joke that they managed to sign off those 10 um, lines uh, in uh, less than a minute. And they said, <laughs> possibly the only thing we ever signed off faster was an agreement about our, position, our joint position on Brexit. <laughs> uh, we are, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a rather tragic position at the moment, which is um, we have no say at the table. We've said we're leaving. We have been one of the biggest voices in Europe. A lot of it was going our way and suddenly we're not there. That does change the balance um, in the EU. You'll see France at the moment is really pushing, Macron is really kind of pushing the boundaries and trying to take the lead and trying to shape things. France used to be tempered by the UK. It Mm. is not at the moment. Um, Germany is going off under a slightly different direction under, uh, under, um, I'm sorry, I'm going to not be able to pronounce the name, so let's just do AKK. Um, And and so its absence will be felt, not just in budgetary terms, but also in influence. Right. Uh, you already mentioned, uh, uh, Joy, um, Poland and Hungary and, and Italy, uh, perhaps to an extent. But I, m- I wonder how the Eastern Bloc of nations uh, are reshaping Europe's identity. Maybe we can come on to that a little bit. Well, uh, the, the, the kind of one big question between Poland and Hungary is that they, at some point, don't want to follow the rules of the EU and Poland in particular is in trouble about um, the rule of law and they've been sanctioned or they're trying to sanction them but there's a unanimity pact which is you know you have to have everybody else sanction you and Hungary said no we're not going to do that Poland has done the return for Hungary and Orban has been um, hostile been particularly hostile towards Juncker uh, and uh, his refusal to take asylum seekers uh, the anti-Semitic stuff that's going on in Hungary so that changes the tone of it however i don't think it's as uh, and so and then we also need to add italy into that right. mix which is actually a relatively big economy within the eu however 
places like Slovakia have actually kind of dropped away from this kind of Visegrad pact between them where they were indeed enforcing their um, influence as a bloc. I think what's probably more interesting uh, now than looking at those divisions is to look at the rise of the uh, right um, in across Europe, which will manifest itself in the next European Parliament. And that hasn't really existed previously, but Salvini is doing a very good job of getting the AFD on board, the True Finns on board, the Danish uh, People's Party on board. Uh, and that will be a different scene, which will be in opposition to kind of EU values. Uh, Mary, I wonder if, if you've ever been to Sibiu and if there's a significance <laughs> that uh, European leaders are talking there uh, this week. Um, I have been to Cebu. Um, it is an absolutely gorgeous place to go. Um, it's very atmospheric. It's got lots of old architecture. And I'm sure um, in the quite a lot of years since I've been there, I'm sure it's been restored and renovated. So it looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, I think that I think the R- Romania currently has the presidency. So that may, may be one reason. Also, the um, anniversary um, since the big enlargement um, and I think, you know, but both those that are sort of symbolic to say, yes, you know, East and Central Europe, they really, really are part of um, of the European Union. But I also, um, Joy was referring to the European elections. And of course, we are in the UK, we're in the most extraordinary position um, of being about to vote in the European elections as well. Um, and I went to a very peculiar event last night, which was called, I've even brought the visual aid, um, <laughs> Europe's Big Night Out, um, which was held in the centre of um, Westminster. And it was a combination of sort of um, variety acts and um, serious people from the European Union talking about getting the vote out um, and what what Europe stood for and European values and how to get young people out to vote. Um, And as I say, it was a very peculiar combination of things, but it ended up um, with everybody waving around all sorts of um, illuminated sort of torchlight, candle-like things in European colours and singing the European anthem in three languages. So um, there is a little bit of Europe still in London. Well, the great irony is we've managed to spawn probably one of the largest, largest pro-European movements in the whole of the <laughs> EU. Um, I'm, I want to go to Cebu, having seen it. Uh, <laughs> it's now literally number one on my uh, travel agenda. Uh, it looks like a wonderful place from, from the imagery we are seeing from there today. Uh, let's take a short break. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Joy Ladiko, and Mary Dejewski. Coming up, cab drivers go on strike for Uber, but where is their final destination? Download the free Monocle 24 app today to tune in wherever in the world you happen to be. Whether you're catching up on the news on your daily commute, enjoying a little cultural nourishment during your morning run, or seeking some recipe inspiration around the kitchen table, the Monocle 24 app allows you to tune in live or download your favourite shows to enjoy later. Get started by downloading the Monocle 24 app today. Monocle 24, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. 
In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. Welcome back to Midori House. I'm Daniel Bage. Still with me, Joy Ladico and Mary Dejewski. Ride-hailing app Uber is set to unveil its public offering on Friday with the company whose delivery capabilities now range from people to food set to be valued at somewhere around $90 billion, uh, less than its initial predicted valuation, yet uh, still huge for an IPO. But some of its workforce, the cab drivers, seem less than happy. Many went on strike across global cities, calling for better income and more job security, among other demands. Uber has today reached a settlement with the drivers over some of their con uh, concerns, including their employment status. Joy, uh, do you use Uber and uh, have you crossed the picket line here? Uh, I, have, uh, I haven't used it yeah. today. I yeah. do use it occasionally. I'm, okay. I'm much more of a walker than a car taker um, well, that's where good. possible. Um, I think Uber, I mean, I think Uber is a, a fascinating company because it's just, it's part of the technological wave that is changing every, uh, everything about how we actually uh, operate in the, in the modern world. But it's caused all sorts of problems with the old world and the collision with it. Um, this employment dispute is particularly fascinating. Mm. It's happened in the UK as well. By... Rather like Facebook saying, look, look, we're just a platform, we're not a publisher, and eventually being absolutely hammered and having to kind of concede that it was a publisher and therefore had to take responsibility for what it's, what's on its website. Uber, again, pitched itself always as a tech company. And we said, no, you're not. You're employing drivers. You are the creating the conditions where they work. You're deciding their pay. Um, at some point, you have to concede that they are indeed your employees. The other side of that, obviously, is that Anybody who is an employee of Uber uh, or a driver for Uber has got a much more flexible regime than would have happened in a sort of an mm. old minicab office. And so, in fact, they're benefiting a great deal from the gig economy if they want to do several other things with their lives. That gives them that flexibility, I guess. Um, as with any service that's, uh, that comes on the market as cheaper than others, um, there's always going to be someone in the chain that gets a worse off deal married. Uh, does the gig economy add up then for you? What do you think? Well, I have to say that I'm absolutely adamantly opposed to Uber on principle. Hmm. I have not used Uber and I have no intention of using Uber. Um, and there are two reasons for that. Um, one of them is um, the conditions that the drivers have. Um, and I think it's interesting that they're going on strike because they are depriving themselves in a way that a um, company employee wouldn't necessarily deprive themselves of directly of income in order to go on strike. Um, but I think there, there is a problem there because although they are striking, as I understand it, partly about the disparity between um, this... Um, the, the value, the supposed value of the IPO and their wages, the reason they get work is because they charge fares which are lower than the other taxi companies. And so if they want more pay, their competitive edge goes. It goes overnight and their jobs won't necessarily be there. So I think there's, a, the, the, there's quite a delicate equation there to, to, to be worked out there. Um, but the other reason that I'm, uh, I'm sort of op uh, opposed to Uber is because I think, um, certainly in London, they've driven an absolute coach and horses through the um, restrictions on traffic in central London, which were designed to reduce fumes and 
to reduce to improve traffic flow. They were subject to no restrictions on numbers whatsoever. So there have been huge extra numbers largely accounted for um, by Uber drivers in central London, um, which has clogged everything up, um, reversed any improvements in air quality mm. so that extra regulations have been brought in. Um, and also arguably has caused lower ridership numbers on London's uh, transport yes. system, which which means yes. the income is lower, which means, in yeah. fact, you begin to drain that system. Yes. And causing problems, obviously, not only for public transit, but for for other taxi um, uh, companies as well. I'm curious, uh, Joy, you already pointed out, this is is a tech company, and other companies such as Spotify could be looked at it in the same way. Maybe musicians uh, receive only minimal payments on the streams of their tracks. Is this just an issue of how we use technology and how the internet works? Or is it, as you say, maybe giving people flexibility and allowing other opportunities? Well, I'll come to Spotify in one second, but there's one more point I'd like to make about Uber, which is this is a temporary (laughs) dispute. Uber very much will have a plan to have an electric uh, automated car fleet uh, in Mm -hmm. the next 10 years. So it's all very well Mm -hmm. sort of saying, oh, we're trying to look after the drivers, whatever deal they come to. They know very well that the driver takes, I think, uh, about 75% of the fare at the moment and Uber takes 25%. The minute you get self-driving cars, Uber will be paying only 25% for that car to be driving on the road and they'll be taking 75% profit. So all that debt is a very long-term gamble. On Spotify, mm. I have spent years trying to refine one particular article that I read, which was on somebody who said, look, everybody's complaining about how little that money costs, how little those artists get paid per track listen. Mm. And they calculated that if you bought a a Madonna album and you listened to your favourite song on that Madonna album um, 50, 60, 70 times, you would essentially be paying the same as what Spotify would be paying you Mm. in terms of the total cost of the album broken down again. Um, So, you know, if you've paid £10 for the album and you've listened to that song 50 times, each time you listen to it is tuppence. Mm. And that's it. And so the mathematics don't necessarily work they feel like they hurt but they don't necessarily work now I do actually know that's not necessarily (laughs) entirely true the music industry has had to change what it's doing but what it's had to do is actually go backwards to an older model which was live performance it's actually a pre-recording model and I think musicians rather got rather into state like football stars of being paid an absolute fortune and perhaps this is actually a, a good correction and has allowed uh, many more musicians into the market. Well, that is a positive note because live performances are our way up and uh, we can see Beyonce play at Coachella on Netflix, so it's all it's all good. But uh, <laughs> uh, finally on today's program, Dublin, one of the world's greatest cities for a tipple, is about to get its first alcohol-free pub. That's right. And what's the point, you say? Well, the owner of the Virgin Mary Bar in Dublin says tastes are changing, pointing out that a quarter of adults in Ireland already don't drink at all and that consumption overall is falling and has been rapidly since about 2005. It's true many are making healthier choices these days, which don't involve alcohol and pubs and bars in general have been absolutely terrible at catering to people who don't want to drink. Water or sugary sweet drinks have long been the only options. And if people are afraid of sober dating, says the owner of uh, owner of this bar, Von Yates, they'll well, they are welcome to head to any of the city's raucous other haunts where you can barely hear yourself think by 10 p.m. So, Mary, would you be up for an alcohol-free cocktail at this new establishment? I would only be up for it if somebody kindly hosted me. I don't think I'd personally go there and volunteer to pay to be in um, an alcohol-free pub. Uh, Joy, is a pub still a pub without booze? Well, the trouble is, a pub is still a pub without mm. booze, uh, but, but pubs are 
all suffering from this downturn. And so yeah. there are stories, uh, you know, it's not just actually British and Irish pubs, you know, uh, across Europe, any, any establishment that is led by alcohol and it's an old traditional place is losing out not necessarily because people don't want to go to the traditional place a lot of pubs are kind of being retrofitted to look very cool but um, because the, the alcohol consumption has completely gone down yeah. having said that I sort of would go. I think one of my favourite things I've ever done was to go sober dancing at a bar um, at sort of 11 o'clock at night. And it feels so illicit. Everybody else around you is sort of quite <laughs> drunk. And there you are, absolutely wide-eyed, clear. You know exactly what you're doing. And it's a, it's a kind of perverse thrill. Uh, many establishments are already catering to vegans or people who are gluten-free. So what's wrong with alcohol-free? Isn't it, This is a huge opportunity, isn't it, Mary? Well, I mean, it may be. We'll have to, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, it's quite difficult for me to imagine how you can actually create um, a pub-type atmosphere um, without, without at very least weak forms of beer. <laughs> um, so I'm prepared to sort of sit on the sidelines or at least watch from the doorway and see what happens. Maybe they should just bring back some smoking instead. <laughs> <laughs> see how that goes over. <laughs> see how that goes over. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Mary Dijewski and Joy Ladiko will we'll remain divided on the alcohol-free question. Uh, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Tom Hall, research by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick, our studio manager, Mr. David Stevens. More music next, and then at 1900 hours, it is The Urbanist. We'll have more on the day's top news stories on the Monocle Daily with Emma Nelson. That is at 2200 London time, 1700 in Toronto. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow with Andrew Muller, 1800 here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.